The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Amen. Good morning, Springs Church. I want to welcome each and every one of you this morning in the name of Jesus Christ. It's so good to be with you. If you're a visitor here today, I especially want to thank you so much for joining us, choosing to be with us, and uh, worshiping with us. I hope you'll give us a chance to talk to you afterwards, to get to know you a little bit, and hopefully help you get to know us. We are a church, a people that are being transformed into the image of Christ so that anyone can find the way to God. And so we'd love to talk with you more about that today, if you'll give us a chance. We've got to take a moment this morning to both lament and celebrate yet again, because it is Alexis Hickson, it, our intern Alexis, it is her final Sunday with us this summer. We had Alexis with us last summer. She's done another fantastic job this summer, just done great work with our kids, with our worship ministry, with communications, and uh, we're just so grateful for her, and we're sad to see her go, but happy to send her back off to Pepperdine. Um, She's always going somewhere lovely, so. (laughs) Um, But actually, we have such a great crop of interns in general. This, This summer, this year, everybody has been so fantastic, and I'm so proud of them. Let's give a round of applause for all of our interns. We're continuing in the word of the Lord this morning together. And it brings us to one of the minor prophets today, Hosea, chapter 1, verses 2 through 10. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter, And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned No Mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. 
Lord, we do give thanks for your word this morning. We give thanks for your word that challenges and inspires and encourages and chastens us and equips us most of all to do your good work in this world, to love you, to know your salvation, your good news, and your grace. We give thanks for Jesus Christ, and Lord, I ask for the gift of preaching this morning, and that your Holy Spirit would be upon us, in us, around us, and would illuminate this word in our hearts. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. There's a fascinating new industry that's cropped up in Japan over the last decade or so. Uh, There's an article in the New Yorker that calls it Japan's rent-a-family industry. And maybe you've heard of this. It's really interesting. It's basically an opportunity for people to rent actors to kind of play either their family members, their relatives, or their friends. And especially for large occasions, a lot of their clientele have to do with weddings. Um, So for instance, a groom who has been laid off of work um, but is embarrassed by that or something may rent some people to come play his supervisors and his coworkers at the wedding. Or, for instance, a a single woman with very marriage-obsessed parents might rent a boyfriend. Uh, somebody to come and play her boyfriend. Uh, only this ruse actually, at least several times a year, goes so far that this, these companies will help stage an entirely fake wedding where the only non-actors there are the bride and the mother and father of the bride. But perhaps even more fascinating is a, is a related but kind of offshoot business Uh, that actually specializes in divorce ceremonies. And so with this, uh, a couple will will hold a ceremony that's usually in like a dilapidated kind of building for the symbolism, and they will have a slideshow that has like bullet points kind of going through why the marriage is ending, which by the way has saved several of the marriages that have done this. And you know, one of the strangest things that has happened in one of these divorce ceremonies, though, is that the soon-to-be ex-husband dressed up as a human-sized wedding bouquet, strapped on a bungee cord, and the soon-to-be ex-wife pushed him off a cliff. Human-sized wedding bouquet, bungee cord, off a cliff. Strange, strange industry that is cropping up in Japan right now. But I think it speaks to this sort of human desire that we have for symbolism, for ceremony even, right? We long for a kind of dramatic enactment of what it is that we're going through. We want something tangible, something flesh and blood that we can point to and say that That's it. That's what's happening. And I think this strange industry can go some way towards illuminating our text this morning. God has called the prophet Hosea to a very strange, outlandish, unsettling display. Right? God has has called for this kind of flesh and blood 
tangible enactment, representation of what is happening with his relationship with his people Israel. Right? It's like God has invited Israel into this dilapidated, run-down building, and he said, Hosea, dress up as a human-sized wedding bouquet, strap on a bungee cord, Israel's going to push you off the cliff. Right? God has called for this kind of strange action because he's willing to do anything to break through and get Israel's attention. God is is trying to do anything to break through their self-deception, their hard-hearted idolatry in order to save the marriage, in order to save this covenant relationship. And so he says to Hosea in verse two of chapter one, when the Lord spoke through Hosea, notice he's speaking through Hosea to the people of Israel. The Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. I think the Jerusalem Bible translation actually gets it with a lot of brevity brevity and force. It says, go marry a whore and get children with a whore for the country itself has become nothing but a whore by abandoning Yahweh. Yikes. Christians in this country have been kind of stereotypically associated with censoring or banning books with explicit language. How did Hosea slip by? That's some strong language right there. That is strong language and more than just strong language, a a strange and strong and unsettling prophetic action that God has called Hosea to. You know, of all the prophetic actions in the Bible, I feel like this is in the running for the very worst. I mean, if you are a prophet and you're kind of bidding God's prophetic projects, I think you're going to go for just about anything other than this. Like, you might even take Isaiah's walk around for three years naked. Like, that seems better than this on some level because Hosea's job is to be humiliated. Right? Hosea's calling here is to have a broken heart, is to endure shame, rejection, and suffering, to display this wounded love of God for Israel. There's a poem by the poet Christopher Warner who calls a prophet an anointed thistle. I think that's exactly what Hosea is. He's an anointed thistle. He's this kind of unsightly eyesore that has been called to sprout up to remind Israel of what's happening in their land. An agitation, an anointed thistle. And it only gets worse. It only gets worse in verse three. So Hosea went and took Gomer his wife, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, 
For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. I'm so excited for you this November to meet our little newborn boy, Gettysburg Vanderzee. You don't like it? (laughs) Right, because Jezreel, I mean, this is a bloody battle, right? This is like naming one of our children after like a World War II battlefield or the Civil War or what have you. And this is what God is, is calling attention to, is what happened at Jezreel. This, this bloodshed upon bloodshed when Jehu killed the king of Israel and the king of Judah, when he displayed severed heads, when he committed mass murder, and God is saying, I do not approve. Right? This is God saying, I have not forgotten about the sin at Jezreel. And my judgment is upon those actions of violence. But the tragic names keep coming. Moving ahead to verse six. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses, or by horsemen. What about no mercy, Vanderzee? I don't know what's worse. I feel like no mercy, Vanderzee would probably become a WWE wrestler, I think. But, but seriously, there is a crucial detail that I don't wanna blow by here, because you'll notice that with the first child, It says that Gomer conceived and bore him a child, bore Hosea a child. What's missing in verse six? There's no him, there's no pronoun. And suddenly, the parentage is cloudy. Suddenly, the marriage has been invaded and there's strong hints that this child is not legitimately Hosea's, right? There's strong hints that Gomer has become unfaithful to him. And scholars debate about whether or not Gomer was a prostitute before or after Hosea married her. Um, There's some parallels in chapter two that make it kind of seem like she just became a prostitute after the marriage, but either way, it looks here that this child definitely is a child of unfaithfulness. So why is God trotting out these names of judgment? What's happening in Israel right now? I know it says that they've committed acts of whoredom, but what does that mean? What's actually been going on? And if you have a cursory reading of the book of Hosea, you'll see all sorts of sins going on. You'll see swearing and lying and adultery and orgies and murder and pride and greed. You'll see treaties with powerful leaders or foreign powers trying to secure their safety and well-being 
rather than through God. You'll see bloodshed, violence, and you'll see just some good old-fashioned idolatry. Right, Hosea 2.8 is a pretty striking example. God says, yet until now, Israel has refused to acknowledge that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil, and that it was I who lavished on her the silver and gold which they used in worshiping Baal. So, Israel's idolatry, and this is really what idolatry is, isn't it? It is taking these good things from God and twisting them towards different ends, right? Taking, in this case, grain, wine, oil, silver, gold, good gifts from the Lord. And rather than using them to worship God, using them to worship self, using them to worship an idol, taking God's good gifts and distorting them from his good ends to a different purpose. So it's no surprise when things reach a fever pitch with the third and final child. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. I don't have a baby name joke for this one, right? It's gravely serious by this third child. It's become gravely serious, and again, there's the hints that this is not Hosea's legitimate child, that this is another child of unfaithfulness. And God really seems to be just directly repudiating those very covenant promises that we have in, say, Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus 26, where he says, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. But now he says, not my people. What's going on here? What do we make of these divine denunciations? Well, on the one hand, I think it's important for us to sit in the discomfort of these texts, right? It's important. That's why the word of the Lord is so great. It takes us to areas of scripture that we might not normally go, that we might neglect, and so I think it's important for us to sit with the discomfort of these words of judgment, right? These words of, of condemnation and wrath. On the other hand, I think it's important to note that these oracles of doom are not irrevocable sentences, right? They are shouts of warning, they're shouts of warning. They're the, the symbolic prophetic display of God trying to get Israel's attention. Trying to say, look, when you live in these death-dealing ways, this is what happens. Right? It's like a child about to cross the street in crowded traffic. It's a shout of warning. Stop. But it's uncomfortable. 
right? I think, I think a lot of us shy away from some of these areas of scripture, and there are many of them, with wrath, with judgment, with condemnation, right? And for many of us, good re- with good reason, right? I think our tradition is as guilty as many others of kind of using this language of wrath and judgment and condemnation as a sort of cudgel to beat people over the head at times without any grace offered. But I think it's also important for us to recognize these words, right? To recognize that it's not even just an Old Testament thing, but that Jesus has strong words for many in the New Testament, especially the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? I think it's important for us to recognize what happens because God is truth and light and goodness, and therefore God must be opposed to darkness and falsity and evil, right? God creates everything true and good and beautiful, and God wants to renew and restore and redeem the world, and so he must be against anything that tries to thwart his redemptive purposes, right? When we feel enmity and anger at injustices in the world, that is evidence of this righteous wrath of God. In the psalm that we read this morning, it says, you oppose my angry enemies. But here's the key, I think. The key is, as James Smart says, God's love resisted is felt as wrath. That God's love and God's wrath are not two separate things, right? God is light, in him there is no darkness. But that when we put ourselves in opposition to God, we begin to feel, say, his heat more than his light of his love, right? We begin to feel his love when resisted as wrath. All right, think about a compass needle. There's a theologian from the 19th century uses this analogy of a compass needle that is always trying to point this upper end towards the North Pole. And that's because of this magnetism that's pulling it there, but at the very same time, it's being repelled away from the South Pole. Right, well this is not two different magnetisms, not two different magnetic forces, but the very same, one and the same magnetism that is pushing this upper end of the needle towards the north and repelling it away from the South Pole, right? And that's a bit like God's love, right? Pushing us towards his good, restorative, redemptive, gracious, salvific purposes in the world and moving us away from sin and death and the devil. God's love resisted is felt as wrath. And I think we see this all the more at the end of our passage. In verse nine, and the Lord said, call his name not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered 
And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. As one commentator said, grace has a way of interrupting oracles of doom. Grace has a way of interrupting. And you can hear the echoes of Abraham, right? The promises that your people will be more numerous than the sand, unable to be counted, and that in the very place where you receive this word of of condemnation, of, of judgment, this word of opposition to evil, you will be called children of the living God. There's a lot of interesting names in Hosea. And I think one of the most interesting to me this past week is actually the name Hosea. Right? Hosea has morphed a little bit on its journey from Hebrew to Latin and Greek and finally into English. It's actually pronounced in the Hebrew Hosea. It's the very same name, Hosea. And as you can probably hear, Hosea is intimately linked to the name Joshua, which means he saves. They both mean essentially he saves or he has saved. And Hosea and Joshua, of course, are intimately linked to a name in the New Testament that means he saves, to the name of Jesus Right, and as Hosea, or Hosea, was called to perform this strange, unsettling, outlandish, prophetic action on behalf of unfaithful Israel, he, he was called to enter into suffering, to be sinned against, to be rejected, in order that he might display God's never failing, never giving up, radical, faithful love for his people. Just as Hosea has done that, Yeshua, Jesus, has been called to perform this this radical, strange, unsettling, outlandish, prophetic action on behalf of unfaithful Israel has been called to enter into suffering, to be rejected, to be shamed, to be sinned against in order that he might display God's never failing, never giving up, radical, faithful love. In the cross and the resurrection, Jesus saves. Jesus is the ultimate enactment of God's unparalleled faithfulness, the ultimate extreme symbolism of God's yes to humankind and the world. Jesus is the faithful spouse. He is the one who who buys us back out of our whoredom, who loves us out of our prostitution and idolatry, who restores us to honor and salvation. Jesus is the faithful one, even when we are faithless. In fact, Paul articulates this in 2 Timothy. He says, the saying is sure. If we have died with him, 
we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You see what's happened there? How it shifts grammatically? We have, have these if-then statements, right? If we've died with him, then we'll live. If we endure, then we'll reign. If we deny, he will deny. But then, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because, for, he cannot deny himself. Even if we are faithless, if we have no faith, Right? Even if, if we prostitute ourselves, if we commit idolatry, if we turn away, God cannot deny himself. He remains faithful. As one preacher said in a sermon on Hosea, God's faithfulness to Israel is stronger than her unfaithfulness to him. Right? God is not opposed to us. It is our opposition to God that he is determined to overcome. That he has overcome in Jesus Christ. Let's stand and praise together the God who is faithful, the God who saves.